This is a podcast by The Straits Times and Money FM 89.3. Welcome to Asian Insider, a series from The Straits Times. I'm your host, Nirmal Ghosh. Now, on the 1st of February this year, Myanmar's military, the Tatmadaw, seized power in a coup d'etat. Widespread resistance to the coup ranged from street protests across the country, especially in the following weeks, to opposition that has now hardened into wider armed resistance. And meanwhile, Myanmar's economy has crashed. The local currency, the chart, plunged, driving up the cost of imports. Restrictions on cash withdrawals have fueled worries about banks. And I want to focus today on the fallout of all this for ordinary people. Now, the UN in September estimated 63,000 people temporarily displaced in Sagaing, more than 12,000 in Magwe. In Chin State, conflict has displaced close to 12,000. And elsewhere as well, the situation has been deteriorating. Over 100,000 displaced in Kaya State, again from fighting, over 13,000 in Shan State. The list is long and one could go on and on, and the ground situation also varies probably week to week. And this is not to speak of previous displacements, of the Rohingya, for instance. But consider this, and I quote from the UN assessment in September. Across the country, access to vulnerable people in need of urgent humanitarian assistance and protection services remains significantly restricted due to escalating armed clashes, overall insecurity, and COVID-related restrictions. And as of 27 September, less than half of the 276.5 million US dollars requested under the, under the humanitarian response plan, and only 15% of the 109 million requested under the interim emergency response plan had been funded. Now, to help understand the magnitude and nature of this humanitarian crisis, I have with me on the line today Andrew Kirkwood, Acting Interim UN Resident Coordinator and Humanitarian Coordinator for Myanmar, in, currently in Naypyidaw. Mr. Kirkwood, thank you for joining Asian Insider. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Nirmal, and it's nice to, um, to talk to you again. You've highlighted, well, I mean, and, and yes, eight and a half months on, the, um, the takeover has had terrible consequences. Uh, it's trampled on the basic rights of people in Myanmar to express themselves, but also to, um, to have a government that represents them. It's also, uh, you didn't mention this, but it's also worth noting that it's also, um, it's endangered the, the fragile peace process. I mean, fighting has clearly escalated in many parts of the country uh, since the 1st of February. Um, the previous government had reached agreement with a number of armed groups to try and bring peace and stability to the country. And I think it's fair to say that that process is, is stalled at best. I would also like to focus on what this all means for the people of Myanmar. I mean, we hear the term crisis used quite a lot, unfortunately, these days around the world. But, and I think it's important for me to emphasize that the people of Myanmar are living through a severe crisis at the moment, um, no matter how one defines that term. Before the military takeover, the United Nations was providing life-saving humanitarian assistance to a million people. Um, in conflict-affected areas, the number of people in, in need of humanitarian assistance at the moment, we estimate to be 3 million people, and that's a tripling over the last eight, um, eight and a half months. In addition, 
there are there are we think 20 million people now living below the poverty line that's nearly half the population and that's a poverty rate that we haven't seen in this country for over 20 years uh, those those people are not yet part of what we would call our humanitarian caseload um, but we are very worried that at least some of those people will be in in need of uh, life-saving humanitarian assistance in the future. So I, you know, I think that what we're seeing, the crisis, what we're seeing now, is is, is the compound effects of many things. It's it's uh, it's certainly COVID nineteen and and the sum and the big wave in the summer here um, has is is part of what's to blame. Conflict, of course, is um, has been uh, a feature of Myanmar for a very long time. And then, you know, the military takeover in, 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 on the 1st of February has, has compounded that again. So we're really looking at a, at a crisis on top of a crisis with yet now a third crisis on top of that. Are there any particular regions that concern you most at the moment? Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, the whole, many, many parts of the country uh, are uh, of huge concern. The three, the three million people that are now in need of emergency assistance are in the areas, uh, well, in a number of areas, but the, particularly in the so-called border regions, Chin, Kachin, Kayin, Kaya, Northern Shan, but also, uh, and this is a relatively new dynamic in Myanmar, in the, the urban and peri-urban areas of Yangon, Mandalay, and other cities around the country, which have, um, have seen uh, sort of a new form of, of conflict between what are sometimes called people's defense forces and the Myanmar military. Over 200,000 people have been newly displaced since the 1st of February. Um, and you know, due to conflicts between the, the, the Myanmar armed forces and the ethnic armies, but also with those um, between the, the, the Myanmar military and, the, uh, and these people's defense forces. So there is this question of access for humanitarian workers and humanitarian aid. What is the latest on that aspect? I mean, we have two and a half thousand people in, in country um, providing assistance of all, of all kinds. And so, you know, we, we do have access to some of these areas and we are continuing to provide assistance. We've, um, we've reached 1.7 million people this year with food and cash assistance, for example. Um, lots of other assistance as, as well. But of course, access is not what we would like it to be. It's, it's, it, there are um, constraints on road, there are road um, checkpoints everywhere in the country, as you can imagine. Um, we need permission for our staff to travel uh, to various places. There's, a, there's quite a long and um, lengthy, well, a lengthy and bureaucratic process for uh, for getting those permissions, and I mean, all this means is we we don't have access to everyone we would like to. That's um, that's for sure, and, and I think also that's not the only constraint we face. And uh, you did highlight it at the beginning that there there's an overall funding constraint as well. And we we have managed to raise nearly half of the $385 million that we need for humanitarian assistance in this country. But that leaves close to $200 million that um, is, is a gap. And we would need, for example, nearly $90 million just for 
continued food and cash assistance to to people in need. This podcast is available on our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us. And now, back to our podcast episode. I'm glad you came back to the funding thing. That was my, my next question to you. What should the international community and particularly the donor community understand about this? What would be your message to them? Well, a, a number of things. And I think it's important, for, again, for me to emphasize that the, the, the United Nations continue and its partners um, are here where we are reaching people in need. We are providing important assistance to the people of the country at, the, at, the, at this time. And despite the constraints, we are able to help. So, uh, you know, additional funding can be put to good use, I think is, is, is the important part of that. I mean, you know, there are many parts of the United Nations who are working on aspects of this crisis. Um, and here in country, I think, you know, our role is clearly focused on the people of the country, um, trying to ameliorate the worst of the, the effects of this crisis. Now, there have invariably been many people from hundreds to several thousand displaced in Myanmar at any given time, as you alluded to earlier, for many years now, especially in ethnic border regions where there is, you know, has been on again, off again conflict with the army. And one underlying factor is the economy, which with the exception of a few relatively rosy years after 2011, has never been in great shape with deep structural issues. And I was looking this up and back in 2019, before the pandemic, and of course, well before the coup, the IMF was warning that the economy was, quote, losing momentum and flagged at that time the humanitarian crisis in Rakhine State as a concern. It said basically that Myanmar risked losing concessional donor financing. So can one argue that there was already a decline and that decline only became precipitous after February 2021? And more, I suppose my real question is, are we stuck dealing with the symptom, essentially, the need to feed people with no real addressing now of underlying structural issues. I think we need to be careful about how to describe the, the decline that you mentioned. The decline that the IMF was talking about in 2019 was a decline in growth rates from very heady rates at that time. Um, and so I think it is fair to say that the, the economy was cooling is not the right word, but you know, growth rates were slowing. And I think that's a function of the, 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 the important structural um, changes that started in this country in you know, 2012 and 13, and then continued through uh, the NLD government uh, in 2016 onwards. You know, there were some very, very difficult structural issues. I mean, just floating, having a single exchange rate in this country for the chat was a, was a hugely important and quite difficult um, structural change to make. And so I guess it's, one could say that you know, much of the low-hanging fruit on the economic reforms had been undertaken. And as you get further down the list of economic, important economic reforms, they get more difficult. Um, but again, with the, the country in 2019, the country was growing still at quite uh, you know, at, at quite a fast rate, the economy was growing at a fast rate. I think what's happening now, of course, I mean, and it's important in terms of the economy and what this means for people again, that it's a largely agrarian economy still compared to other countries in Southeast Asia 
you know, nearly 40%, let's say a third of the GDP of the country comes from, from agriculture. And, and over half of the people in the country are employed in primary agriculture. And for farmers, what this right now, um, transportation uh, costs have doubled since, uh, you know, over the last eight and a half months. And so all of their inputs, seed, fertilizer, um, are, are increasing in costs. And the the, the cost, the, the price that they're getting for their, their uh, rice and, and beans, et cetera, is, is going down because of the transportation costs. So farmers are squeezed in the middle. And this is why we are seeing, I think, can really considerable increases in, in poverty rates. But, you know, I mean, hundreds of thousands of, of mostly young female garment workers have lost their jobs. Construction is pretty much on a standstill. Restaurants and other services are are closed um, all, all around the country, and and so the economy is uh, is you know is really in difficult in difficulty, as you said. Can you give me a sense? Can you give us a sense of, in terms of the displaced people, are they widely scattered? Are they living in, for example, in in jungles in some cases, or are they in internal? Uh, Camps, refugee camps, I and mean, what is the sort of geography of the displacement? How 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 is it on the ground? Yeah, the, that million people that we had um, that we were providing assistance to, say a year ago, uh, were almost entirely in the the border areas of the country. Some of them living in in internally displaced uh, camps, as you have said. But many of them also living in, you know, makeshift settlements and things in in these areas. Now, since uh, since the first of February, and with the sort of the new conflict dynamics, as I said, more than two hundred thousand people have been newly displaced, and those new displacements have happened all around the country in places where there is, it, it, they pop up, these, the, the conflict between these people's defense forces um, and the, the Myanmar armed forces pop up in, in, in places all around the country, really in, not quite at random, one could say, but in unexpected places. And so there are people in Chin State, for example, who are now living in terrible conditions in the forest uh, with very, very little assistance. There are people who have fled villages in uh, in the northwest of the country, in in, in Sagaing and, and and Mandalay, into uh, surrounding forests as well as you have described. Um, and so it's 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 difficult to to characterize it in you know in one sweep because the the conflict dynamics and therefore the displacement dynamics are are, are very quite a lot around the country. Right. Now, you have been there almost two decades. And I think before that, I think you worked in Africa in the Sahel, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, obviously, every case is unique, but you know Myanmar very well. And one does develop some instinct as to the direction things are going in. What does your instinct tell you about the direction in Myanmar? You're right. I have been here um, a long time. And the country's gone through many crises since I've been here. There was the, the Saffron Revolution in 2007. There was a, a massive cyclone in 2008 that killed 150,000 people. 
uh, you know, the, 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 the political and economic um, reforms that took place in 2010, 11, 12 were, were exciting. All through this up and down, I would say, the conditions for the people of the country have been consistently improving since I arrived over the last 20 years. It's almost like watching the stock market have banner year after year after year. I mean, there are ups and downs, but the trajectory has been consistently upwards. And that has, for someone like me living in a country far away from my own country, it's been it's been very rewarding to see pe- the conditions for people getting consistently better. And, I, and now it's important to emphasize that almost 20 years of that progress in many ways has been wiped out. And, and the people of the country, for many people, their dreams are, are they, they feel like their dreams are shattered. It's, it's a, it, it is a difficult time to be here at the moment. Andrew Kirkwood, this is an exceptionally busy time for you. And thank you for sharing some of that time with Asian Insider today. Good luck out there. Thank you, Nirmal. Nice, nice, nice speaking to you again. Likewise. Thank you. That wraps this edition of Asian Insider. I'm your host, Nirmal Ghosh. Please remember to join me and my expert guests on the fourth Friday of every month. The Asian Insider Podcast channel is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us.